1: Hello and welcome everyone to another exciting adventure inside the China shop. I'm shopkeeper Dan. With me, as always, is Kyle, creator of financialneptitude.com. How are you doing today, Kyle? Good. And you? Fantastic. It's been a fun day. Fun day.
0: I've been told I need to put more Letter Kenny references in there. So we'll see if anyone <laughs> catches that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. That's, that's what we need more Letter Kenny. Okay. Kyle, we've got a great episode lined up today. We got an amazing guest. We have. Eric Mason, who happens to be a public labor economist. How are you doing today, Eric?
2: I'm doing doing very good. How are you guys doing? What does the
0: public need an economist for, just out of curiosity?
2: (laughs) Um, Well, probably not for much, if I'm being honest.
0: (laughs) There's Uh, the honesty we love. There we go.
2: (laughs) I push pens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Sometimes they sometimes give me a pencil. <laughs> yeah, but right, maybe. Well, no, I mean, so well, most of uh, labor economics is focused on public policy, you know, trying to make people more efficient based on po- passing different types of policy. And you do that for the government? Yeah, so we do that for the go- – uh, primarily it's for the government. You don't see uh, – a ton of labor economics just solely focused on the private sector. Um, there's a form of economics called organizational economics that really focuses on like the industry side mm. of how to align companies. But, you know, labor is mostly public policy.
0: I just, uh, the the thought of the government trying to be efficient just seems like, I don't know, kind of a foreign idea to me.
1: <laughs> Endless quest. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> like the, you must have the hardest job in the world is what I'm getting at.
2: <laughs> no, it's <laughs> I luckily, we have math. That, that helps me a lot. It's more quant than it is qualitative, so at least I have some respite there. Ah,
0: that seems to matter less and less these days. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> Sorry, okay. All right, before we get completely derailed. So we're all on the same page.
0: <laughs> so we've got a whole bunch of stuff that we want to ask you, but I think we probably should start with the thing that's probably on everyone's mind, and that's uh mm-hmm. what... With- mm-hmm. What's going on over in Russia and Ukraine? As an as uh, economist, uh, maybe you have some different insights into what exactly is going on there. Why is oil spiking? Why are the markets in turmoil? It's like, why is this such a bad thing?
2: You know, it's, I think first and foremost, it's, you know, it's such a horrible, horrible, Humanitarian crisis. I think it's mm-hmm. um, that's really, really the economic threat here, and uh, n- not to belittle it. One of I had a uh, mentor who was really important um, when I was first getting in economics, and he always reminded me. He said Eric, every number you see is a is a person. Every mm-hmm. unemployment statistic is somebody who can't find a job. And I think sometimes we get so hyper focused on you know wh- wh- how many rubles to a dollar, you know, uh, oil, uh, the price of oil. Um, that we forget that, that those are real people being affected. Those are real jobs. Um, you know, those are real life issues that, you know, I can look at a spreadsheet and a program R all day long, but it, it doesn't, you know, remove the humanity of what we're talking about.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, if we look at it from an economic standpoint, it's, it's, it's quite a unique situation. It's, it's interesting because there's the news stories on, from an economic standpoint coming out, create kind of an interesting narrative. Um, Russia has been so heavily sanctioned after Crimea um, that it's its economy really isn't engaging with the rest of the world to begin with, so mm-hmm. it, as the sanctions ramp up um yeah there's some effects that you know will fail domestically, and you know Europe will certainly fail um and they'll be painful, but they 're not anything proportional to what 's going to be put on the average the average russian um and I think right. what 's important is the complete crushing defeat of the ruble just I mean it lost fifty percent of its value mm-hmm. in ten days um you know, I, I, my, my primary background is uh, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I am lean more Austrian than I lean anywhere else. One of the tenets of Austrian economics is that we, we believe prices, good markets maintain information of prices. So no matter how much propaganda the Russian government puts out um, to its own people, mm-hmm. prices still matter. And the fact that your ruble can't buy you anything, I think is really, you know, really a good way to convey information on just how serious repercussions uh, they're facing from the broader economy
0: that's a good point that you make like just how devastating are these sanctions Then, i mean you, you kind of pointed to the ruble but are there any other impacts that are being felt by these because uh, i think when well, i was listening to some of the press conferences like the reporters seem less than impressed with that type of response
2: yeah i mean i, I think one of the difficulties for reporters who I, I i mean i do have a lot of admiration for this economists don't go to war zones right <laughs> is that these are really difficult macro and microeconomic trends that require pretty pretty holistic understanding of how money and capital through, uh, flows through economies to be able to properly convey their effects. Mm-hmm. I'll give like one of the best examples is, um, so the rest of the world isolating Russia and not allowing them to trade with them. You may say, oh, China could pick up the trade, Africa could pick up, the, some countries in Africa could pick up the trade. The problem is that those economies are already at full absorption because the Crimean sanctions already forced Russia to only trade with those individuals, those individual countries. Uh-huh. They can't absorb any more trade, so and they're not going to cripple their own economy to prop up the Russian economy, which is is fairly weak. If, I'll give you an example: like the the GDP per capita in Russia is about, you know, it's in the like nine thousand dollar range, mm-hmm. which is interesting because the poverty line in the United States is about twenty seven thousand. So the average Russian is three times poorer than the poor than a poor American, Whoa. and this is supposed to, and that's supposed to be a world power. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's a sad situation all around. It really is, and it, the, the sanctions compare nothing to what actually is going on in, on the ground in Ukraine.
0: That's interesting point too about the sanctions from Crimea. I didn't realize that those were all still in place.
2: Yeah, they're. Uh, I mean, right now, Morgan Stanley expects a default, um, a whole a whole default from the largest industries in Russia by by mid-April, and I, I think most economists would agree with that. It's Oof. in the the most damage the uh, suffered in a short. Period of time was actually not the Crimean or uh, Georgian sanctions. It was actually the default in the, in the early nineties. And now you have sanctions plus default. I really don't know how. I mean, we uh, the sanctions wiped out over a generation of wealth creation in Russia. Mm-hmm. It, it, that is, you're not going to recover. The, their economy was already sliding, and now it's. I mean, they're, they're a petro state. What, what is the aftermath after? Hopefully, you know, we have a, a peace soon. What what happens afterwards from a sanction wise? I mean, they, they crippled their own economy. For, for what is really the question right, uh, the
0: major businesses in Russia go bankrupt in the next month. What does that mean for the world economy
2: it's been in my opinion, and uh, you know just as just one kind of person meandering in thought is they've been so disengaged from the world market that it really doesn't mean anything. It's a car driving down an empty road it's, they're not on a highway mm-hmm. they've you know we pulled they got pulled off the highway in 2014 and there is an active trade i mean th- their biggest their biggest trade pole is um is obviously. Um, natural gas, it's hydrocarbons. I mean, there's a lot of people who believe they went into Crimea mm-hmm. uh, because of hydrocarbons. I mean, Crimea represents 80% of all Ukraine's natural gas, or at least rights to natural gas. And hmm. it's not a surprise that's where they went. And they have been able to exploit that because Ukrainians um, have shut off water supplies. So there's a major canal that goes into Crimea and has turned it into uh, back into step into high you know high alt- high altitude desert you know I don't know if there's a winner there's not a- I don't believe there's an economic win for anybody here I think it's it's a loss across the board
0: that just makes it seem even more pointless
2: yeah war is often pointless yeah <laughs> uh, well said
0: i also like what you said too about uh every statistic is a is a person and i think a lot of people kind of forget that when you're looking at numbers all the time yeah so it is especially hearing somebody who works for the government saying that, that it makes me uh, feel a little bit better about the future of this, con-
2: this country uh, it's, uh, it, especially when you get into labor economics it's uh, it's one of the things they really try and drill into you is that unemployment you know that's somebody who's, who's doesn't have food security that somebody doesn't know where their next paycheck's coming from and you know that humanizes the data you should always be working do, do your best to analyze the data and come up with a solution to try and help people so why can't we just give
0: everybody a million dollars and then uh <laughs> and then everything would be fixed uh, no, I'm I'm so can, i know the answer right? <laughs> <laughs> Even I know that one. <laughs> uh, you do have on here, um, I should ask you about the ideal minimum wage. I'm curious to, to get the labor economic take on that. Uh,
2: so it, it's it's, uh, it's complicated and controversial. I think of the two words to go with that. Okay, maybe we should skip that one then. <laughs> oh, no, come on, you guys never shy away from this type of topic. What are we <laughs> oh, doing? <laughs> okay. Right. No, I'm curious well, okay, to know. Yeah. so. Um, minimum wage, I think the first thing is when we say minimum wage, we should probably define what mi- what wage means. I think we all know what minimum means. Um, so wage from an economic standpoint is the marginal propensity, is your marginal propensity of labor times your price level. So you take a supply, you take a demand line, the supply line for the labor market, and it's right where those two things intersect. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. uh, and what, it, if we have any, uh, you know, if there's any people who have a, you know, uh, overemphasis on their love of math, it's a partial derivative of the, f- of the production function. Uh, the labor input is brought to its first derivative, um, which is a fancy way of saying how much more production do you, g- do you get by hiring one more person? Ah, uh-huh. right. And you take that number and you times it by the price level. And uh, that's much wage somebody should be paid. So high productive workers should be paid more and low productive workers should be paid less. And the question becomes, what do we define as? How less can they be paid? Do we allow the market to define it? Or do we allow know, private industry to define, to define it? Or do we allow the government to define it? So my viewpoint on minimum wage is I really don't know if there's ever been effective policy that really uses econometrics and market analysis to define what a minimum wage should be. Um, it feels a lot of just grasping at straws. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, here's the thing. If you're, if you're looking for some controversial opinion spun throughout economics where we have these great uh, debates between economists, between Keynesians and Austrians and neoclassicalists, we don't. Because oh, so few okay. people, yeah, I know. Don't, don't get too excited. Um, the, the economy, <laughs> Thunderdome. The economy, <laughs> like, <laughs> no, there's way, there's way too, there's way too much whiskey at these conferences to result in any type oh, of right. <laughs> uh, sustained violence. Oh shit! I want to be
1: an economist, or at least work the convention.
2: <laughs> um, but now they, yeah. Um, no, so the, I mean, what it really comes down to is um, how do we define what the minimum wage should be? But the vast majority of Americans don't earn the minimum wage, so there isn't a lot of. Really advanced research put into defining how, what the minimum wage should be. Uh, my personal philosophy on it is that you know, for good able-bodied, well-trained adults, there really probably shouldn't be a minimum wage uh, because the market's going to satisfy that anyway. So government extra government policy is usually pretty inefficient. Mm-hmm. But I think there should probably be minimum wage for uh, you know people who have certain disabil- people who have disabilities and uh, probably seniors, you know, people who could be exploited by the market. I, I think government's job is to protect the most vulnerable members of society. Uh, a government that only protects the, uh, the strongest members of society, to me, is not a legitimate government. It's just <laughs> you know, a bunch of people being jerks.
0: Well, I mean, would you consider the poor people <laughs> that
2: <with> need protection? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, would, I, would, I would agree to that. I, just, um, I don't agree that minimum wage uh, elevates people out of poverty, and there's really not a lot of data that shows that. Um, what elevates people out of poverty is increasing their marginal production of labor and that 's education mm-hmm. widespread access to education and on job training is the solution if you just give everybody more money you 're going to increase the price level of the economy by increasing the price level of the economy you 're going to ruin people 's savings accounts and the people most vulnerable are the people who are not investing in the stock market which are the poor people mm-hmm. so whatever economic loss we 're going to take by using minimum wage, I would submit that we should actually use that to increase education levels we should allow for easier access for low-income individuals to community college, to, to trades. So, I mean, I mean the, the second highest paying uh, uh, occupation with, a, with four years of experience is welding right now, and that doesn't require a college degree. Um, we, should, we, we shouldn't look to just increase people's money for no reason. It should be give them the skill set so they can earn more money. We should do that. I'm fine with government taking a loss to provide those skill sets.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that you mentioned welding because, I mean, we've been vocal um, champions of trade schools too for as long as I can remember. Uh, I don't have a college education. I made pretty good money working at a steel mill as an electrician, so.
2: Yeah, I mean, those are real skills that we need. I mean, there's a uh, biggest lie you over here is uh, you make $25,000 more by going to college. It's, bi- it's binomial. If you're just mm-hmm. majoring in a STEM field, you make a ton more money. If you're not majoring in a STEM field, you're going to make less money than, uh, than individuals who go into trades. Right. Oh, yeah.
0: So we've all met the bartender that, that has a history degree that <laughs> hates their <laughs>
2: life. Yeah. <laughs> I originally was a history major, and uh, oh, I decided oh, I wanted to wow. be able to feed myself. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I wasn't trying yeah, to make a person. No, I, I made the same decision as you. I said, I want to be able to feed myself. <laughs> yeah.
0: Jesus, Dan, we're going to get your beef finally by accident.
1: <laughs> how, how many economics uh, people actually get rich, though, by studying economics? <laughs>
2: Uh, it, it, it's funny. There's 3 million economists, there's 3 million people with econ degrees, but there's only about twenty two thousand, twenty four thousand 24,000, um, economists. And, uh, <laughs> I think a lot of us just really like the math. It's a good living, man. I'll say it's not bad. <laughs> Uh, I'm not even like what. What. What
0: do you study with that? I mean, is that something that you can take and like make a successful career of investing, or is this just more of a like broader overall pictures of how monetary policy affects systems?
2: Yeah, so economists are used everywhere from health. I mean, I'm sitting right here, and to my left, I have a health econ book. Um, we we're used for everything. We're kind of the math, the applicable mathematics backbone of a lot of, of a lot of industries. It's uh, it's actually economists who calculate health statistics. It's economists who build long-run modeling for finan- the financial sector. Economics is just applied mathematics. We just we, we use advanced what are called causal inference tools to investigate how effects of different, whether it's policy, investment strategies, health decisions. It's, uh, it's one of the most applicable degrees just because it allows you to engage, because it's math-based, in almost any field.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I, I always like it because it's, it's an objective search for truth. That's what I've noticed it to be. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Are you familiar with the, uh, the South Park episode where they, what was that one called Dan with the economy where, uh, Kyle basically becomes like the son of the economy and takes <laughs> on a credit card and takes everyone's debt on. Uh, yes, <laughs> I'm very familiar with that. Okay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: just curious if that's like the, the economist's favorite episode.
2: Uh, but, uh, one of the jokes somebody always makes is that like, uh, there's a Harry Truman quote, which is that, uh, I need a one arm economist because uh, they always say, on the other hand, <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand. Okay, so
0: in your uh, empirical search for uh, uh, the mathematical truths of the, the economy, what can you tell us about the national debt? <laughs> Does it really, really matter? Uh, I, I personally. Yes, Who owe, yes, Yes. please. When we print money, where does that money go? I've got so many questions about this, but I'll let you just get started. <laughs> you
2: guys send like, four of the most challenging questions in the world. All right, we'll just sit back and let you finish the show. <laughs> I guess I'll hit the first one, which is uh, who do we owe money to? The number, one, the number one owner of a debt in the world, of American debt in the world, is Americans. We okay. own our own debt. Um, followed by Japan, no, uh, China owns about twenty percent of our debt. Followed by Japan, then China. So, <laughs> where we print, what happens when we print money? Um, you're going to get a very biased view from me. Uh, so <laughs> that was a grain of salt. <laughs> yes, jackpot. Does it matter when we print money? And because that's because the United States does not allow the practice of seniorage, which is we don't print money and pay our bills. We borrow money and then. We either we have the money in stock or we print it, but it's based on that borrowed dollar. And so mm-hmm. there's always some collateralization behind it. We're not just printing new money and paying uh, bills. That's called an inflation tax. And that's what Greece used. And that's why Greece, when it joined the EU and lost monetary-based control of its currency, it immediately collapsed. <laughs> oh, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. I'll ask you guys a question. If I print a trillion dollars and I put it in my room, what happens to what happens to the value of the dollar? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yep. nothing
0: until you put it in the system right
2: yeah so now so that you're 100 right the monetary base is, is uh monetary supply is a function of money velocity and monetary supply so basically the amount of money in the economy is a function of how many dollars are printed and how fast those dollars can move and with the, with modern banking and modern you know ach debit cards e, uh, efts and all that um money velocity is almost infinite. If you have $1 moving at infinite speed, it's the same thing as having $13 trillion moving at infinite speed. It's, it, it, your monetary supply isn't growing or shrinking, your monetary base isn't materially growing or shrinking. That's why quantitative easing has been so ineffective in the long run. It hasn't stopped anything. Hmm. Um, it, it, as long as money can move fast, it doesn't matter how much, mon- how much money we print. Um, it doesn't matter how much money we spend, though.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. I never thought about it like
2: that before. Yeah, that's what I do. I just try and uh, rock brains. That's my, yeah. that's my number one. <laughs> so what collateral are we using to borrow this money then? It's actually Alexander Hamilton was the one who thought of it, which is future tax revenue is what the collateral we use. That um, sounds like a promise. That is a promise and a half. My <laughs> <laughs> You'd be incorrect. Mm. I'm pretty sure that's the
1: same reasoning <laughs> I've, I've used to get my account to zero every time I've made a stupid purchase. I've got a check coming in two weeks. I'll spend this money now. I'll get it on the credit card, no problem. Wait, are, you making,
2: are you disputing the U.S. government to make stupid
0: decisions? Is that- I'm just saying it didn't work too well for Liberty Steel, the company I used to work for. Uh, they kept borrowing against future invoices, and they've uh, been kind of in a rough spot since.
2: You know, what it comes down to is, like, if there's triple M out there, that's that new monetary theory that basically says that, like, we... Uh, Money doesn't matter. You can borrow as much money as you want. As long as people have confidence they can pay it back, it doesn't matter. And, you know, I, I don't really believe in those types of spectrums. Like, you just can't endlessly borrow money. Right. But we should be borrowing money. We, we, we should be borrowing money for large capital investment. That cost shouldn't be borrowed on people this year. It should be borrowed on evenly throughout the entire life of the, uh, of the uh, asset. I um, mean, that's good private sector mentality. So, the um, city of Quincy has about a billion dollars in outstanding debt. But the vast majority of our outstanding debt is uh, revolves around large capital projects as we revitalize our downtown. And you know mm-hmm. that, to me, that's good pa- Obviously, I was involved in that's good Paul. I'm not gonna shit on my own <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't <did. laughs> <laughs> oh, no, really swear, I
3: apologize.
2: Gotcha. <laughs> oh <laughs> <bit>. <laughs> oh um, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean it's these are good you have good economic returns. I mean, the greatest economic stimulus we ever did was Interstate Highway Act. The mm-hmm. best return. The market is never going to produce highways because they only get about a 2 to 3% return. But the macroeconomic benefit of developing highways and infrastructure systems, you would have to. You, it's, it, I don't know if there's anybody who disagrees that that's good infrastructure. Is that why you like Eisenhower so much? I love Eisenhower. He's the <laughs> absolute <laughs> my, uh, second favorite president. Lincoln uh, I, and Eisenhower.
0: <laughs> I would put your Eisenhower up against Teddy Roosevelt any day of the week.
2: I would. Uh, you know, win a World War II, I feel like we just completely gloss over how awesome that was. <laughs>
0: yes, yes. That's what I was telling Dan before we started. Like, he did win World War II. He gets a pass on a lot of things.
2: <laughs> started the American Space Program, wins World War II, desegregates schools, and this guy gets relegated behind, like, Warren G. Harding. That's say to me. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I tell people that's what my middle name comes from, but... That's not true.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Warren G. Harding.
0: How did Warren Warren was Warren G. Harding was there for um, prohibition, right? Yeah, he was uh, early 1920s. He was right after Woodrow Wilson. I remember watching Boardwalk Empire, and I got the impression that he was just kind of a puppet stuck in there for basically the criminal element to be able to profit off of the bootlegging.
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly what it was. That's like oh, that's, okay. that's not I was really <laughs> I was wondering how accurate that show was. <laughs> yeah, he was he was put in by a very crooked regime, and it's it's funny because Calvin Coolidge, obviously a little biased being from Massachusetts, about Calvin Coolidge, he was seen as too like straight and even, like he was seen as like the most moral, upstanding person. So they just didn't allow him to sit in any of the meetings. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs>
0: Oh god, we could do a whole show on presidential history. I think. <laughs> right. So uh, let's let's shift on then. We covered national debt. Then let's talk a little bit about the Fed and Fed policy. Um, Notice lately that the Fed has finally uh, finally admitted that they're wrong about uh, inflation being transitory. Curious how long you've known that that's not
2: transitory.
3: <laughs> <What's it like? laughs>
2: Now, this is an Eric thing. This is a uh, general economics, and I, I actually like Paul. He's a like fantastic, like a- he's a fantastic actual economist. But like economists were so bad when we become like happy policy policymakers because we just like can't read the tea leaves on, on stuff. <laughs> like, it's, it's super bad. Like, uh, but I, it, that's not a word. We don't use that word. When when I started getting calls about like, hey Eric, what does transitory mean? And I'm like I'm googling it. And I'm like wait a minute, this is this isn't, this isn't a real word. We don't. We don't use is it? We have short run and long run. Those <laughs> yeah. are the two terms we use, and so like I read it, and somebody's like, "It's short run, short run." They're like that's not a thing. <laughs> it's short, short run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so no, 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 If we, we want to get real, if we to get real technical here. There's a very well known economic model when it comes to public policy and the effects it has on the economy. It's made by a husband and wife economist pair, the Roman Romer Tax Theory, and it's this fascinating nonlinear model that basically tells us that. You have twelve you have twelve quarters. Twelve quarters is short run effect. Mm-hmm. And so when we're we're about oh, let's say we're coming up on the seventh quarter, you yep. should start to see some sort of marginality going down. If it's transitory, you should start seeing inflation going down. And it posted a seven point five percent. It was like no <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 there was no experts in stuff like this. So macroeconomics didn't get founded until about 1927. So it's about, you know, nine years after the last pandemic. So we don't have models that can predict any of this. So to call something transitory when you have no backup for it is a little wild. Like <laughs> Inflation has never been transitory. When did prices start going down? That was good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, How much do you agree with um, his, his placing the blame of the inflation on the supply chain?
2: I do agree with that to, to a certain extent. And I think some of those issues existed well before the pandemic, and this mm-hmm. simply exacerbated it a lot. You, you know, it's one of the issues we have is the Panama Canal is having, you know, obviously substantial issues with staying enough, wa- with enough water being the reservoir to fill up ships. Um, there's another big issue, which is that, like, when the Panama Canal expanded its uh, size for how many, how big a Panamanian clash uh, ship could be, um, the number one port on the Eastern seaboard, the port of New York, in newark they have a bridge there and they mm-hmm. knew this was coming for decades and they never lifted up the bridge no oh, now you had all these bigger ships that <laughs> <and> couldn't <laughs> get under the bridge so the ships had to stop <laughs> in kingston and be put on smaller ships and you can just feel the inefficiency you can t- <laughs> feel the inefficiency of that <laughs> like it's it, and there's all little little examples of that over and over and over again so it, yeah it was absolutely it was, the supply chain is a huge issue with that and it, it's been remedying um, I I I love capitalism. I always I'd be in the store with my wife, and um, you know it's right during the pandemic, and you'd see you know no toilet paper. Then a few you know month later, there's sales on toilet paper. I mean, there's they were selling test kits for thirty dollars a pop at the grocery store down the street from me three weeks ago. Now they're on sale for ten bucks. Like, mm-hmm. there's no system better at expressing demand before demand expresses itself than capitalism. And, and so, but you know, depending on the supply chain for any good. Um, we need to get the market and the world economy back engaged before you're ever really going to see supply chain, the supply chain issues dissolve. So there is certainly some inflation in that, but I wouldn't really describe that as inflation. I'd describe that more as like uh, supply and efficiency.
1: Uh-huh. Do you think there's a chance that we'll step back away from the just-in-time delivery?
2: Yes. Yeah, I think that's, people are now putting value on having excess capacity. And it, there's certainly market space to be gained, especially when you consider how how many markets in the world, how many you know, mar- good markets in the world rely on, uh, are based on sequential oligopoly? So, like, the first guy to do something gets the biggest return. Mm-hmm. So, if you're able to operate in the market where you're the only person with supply, ooh, you can actually gain some market share. So, I think people are going to be willing to do that. Um, I think you're already starting to see it, especially in, in like the uh, uh, parcel delivery service. Um, there's always been, you know, th- they're the backbone of just in time delivery. So a lot of those industries actually always were the opposite. They always had excess capacity. There's a very famous flight that takes off from Toledo and goes down to, I think it's somewhere in Mississippi, every Hmm. night. It's an an empty plane that FedEx has. And it's always seen in the industry as like the fact that that plane's empty and he's only full like three weeks out of the year is highly valuable to the company because it displays excess capacity. I think we'll see that in all industries across the board. Mm. That's interesting, huh?
0: Sorry, yeah. I got lost there now. I completely forgot what my next question was going to be.
3: Oh, <laughs> that's a good thing.
0: <laughs> oh, I was going to ask about the infrastructure as far as the, the, the whole supply chain goes. Is there anybody talking about trying to to beef that up? Uh, I know like the Port of Los Angeles has been like overwhelmed for months. Uh, just the, the the ability to even unload these ships when they come in. Uh, like I talk to some truck drivers, they spend, you know, 18 hours in queue waiting to get loaded.
2: Well, one of the bigger, yeah, absolutely. So there's certainly a desire to invest in the capital on that front. And uh, I'm a nerd. I have read, I read ARPA and I read CARES Act and uh, I read the most recent stimulus plan, which was fascinating because it was a billion dollars a page, a billion dollars a page. That's what the value of that bill was. Wow. And um, so one of the issues we have is we're we're trying, there's all this backed up in repressed supply or I should say repressed demand. Mm-hmm. And supply chains take a lot longer to develop. They take, they're long term developments, they're long term capital. And I don't know if companies are willing to invest in that long term capital knowing that eventually supply will be mitigated just through time. Um, if you know you sell 100,000 iPads a day and you're getting, de- and you know, because people weren't able to engage, buy those for two years. So now in the short run, there's a hundred, people demand 120,000 iPads a day. You're certainly not going to build a whole new facility because that's only a short run decision making. Right. So I, I think until we, we enter really about well, three years after the pandemic and we start to really see that these these production and demand stabilize to one another, I think you're going to continue to see supply chain shortages, which upsets me because I really want a PS5 and I just haven't been able to find one. <laughs> you <Yeah. and it's laughs> ready <rate> to be? <laughs> I
0: really want a graphics card, a new gra- video card, so I can build another computer, but I'm not spending $700 for a <laughs> middle of the road card.
2: <laughs> I mean, right. part of me loves the fact that I could get a PS5 if I wanted to just pay like a grand, because it's like, oh, economics. The other part of me just like, hey, you know what, I had a busy day. I'd love to just play. Like Gran Turismo or something?
0: Yeah, <laughs> fucking <laughs> economics.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> angry, but I understand this.
0: Oh, that goddamn supply and demand. Supply and demand curve. It's real. So the Fed is looking at uh, increasing rates. Um, they're, they're easing off their asset purchases. Um, w- what's the good side of all this? Like, how is that going to help stabilize things?
2: Yeah, um, so one, it will help stabilize it because it removes some liquidity from the market. And, and liquidity tends to blur the lines between good and bad decision making. When you really reduce the um, net interest costs that, that happens when you have this much liquidity in the short run, uh, it can make a, good, a bad project seem not so bad and a really good project seem excellent, mm-hmm. and it misrepresents risk. So um, when you have really low interest rates, an interest rate is made up of the real rate of return that's demanded by an organization or a bank or who, ha- who have you, mm-hmm. plus expected inflation. Now, the Fed tells us to expect 2% inflation curve. Um, some more recent data that came out is that the long horizon inflation curve is probably about 3% or 3.16% depending on on who you talk to. So if you have an interest rate of 2% that some people are getting for their purchases, that means it's a negative real interest. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of really good financial economists and financiers who who do a lot of study on this, where there's negative in the short run, we see negative real interest rates. And uh, I'm not too sharp of a guy, so I don't really have the concept of negative interest rates like what is negative (laughs) money like right forget forget about like negative normal interest rates i understand that but like what bank sits down and says do you know what i want a negative real rate of return i want to lose money on this deal yeah (laughs) we'll
0: give you money and pay you to take money like yeah doesn't make sense
1: i once read an article that was trying to explain it like people would take the the loan and the bank is betting that Tying up their money in a loan where they can know the expectation of the loss is going to be better than exposing it to the losses they would have.
2: That is a fantastic way to understand it. There's huh. um, the Federal Reserve actually records this on something called ALLL, which is the allowance for uh, leverage loss leases. Which is like, hey, how much? Hey, banks, how much do you think you're going to lose money this year? <laughs> and mm-hmm. you have to stay with the guidelines for it. I could see that value. I could absolutely see that being the case, uh, where banks are like, "Well, I know I'm going to lose this money. Might as well lend it out <laughs> to it's get like it's something back."
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's at the end of the day.
2: Yeah, right. um, but yeah, but it creates bad decision making uh, or it creates, I would say, non-sophisticated uh, decision making, which can be really problematic. When you start scaling up to the size of the U.S. economy. Um, I, you know, like I said earlier, I'm an Austrian. I really, really believe that accurate pricing is important to efficient markets and when you have this concept of negative real interest rates um it becomes very hard to properly assess what something's worth in the economy okay now you mentioned the the
0: austrian thing a couple different times you you might need to expound on that because i have no idea what that means is that like the difference between adam smith and
2: that means he doesn't believe in the boom bust cycle (laughs) Um, you know to to a certain degree i don't i don't don't follow. I don't follow any one theory to the absolute T. I think everything's a gradient. But you know, it, it, with Austrianism, it was founded by Friedrich Hayek. And uh, it's the belief one of the things that made me fall in love with the field is something called the man on the spot. And that's the belief that the person making the decision is better and smarter when it comes to what's best for him or her than all the economists in the world sitting in an ivory tower. That you're going to make decisions if, you're the, per- if you're, you're the person buying a car. You buy in that car, you understand your personal finances better than as many people with you know more degrees in a thermometer and I, I love that idea. I love that idea that it's, it's we, we base our economic modeling not on some fictitious environment where you know you spend against the when you're in debt, when the economy goes south, you spend more money, and when it goes good, you save more money, and there's pop, this you know, continuous Keynesianism where you just keep pumping money into the economy without stopping And it it doesn't it answer comes up a, a positive feed cycle with austrianism it's, it's an understanding that you know economists don't have all the answers yeah we have some great models and we share sure as i like to talk too much but it's 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 the uh <laughs> don't laugh too much. jeez <laughs> he's sitting right here i was just looking at the timestamp. <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, like, I, I love Austrianism because, you know, we don't build these invisible models of transitory inflation and all that stuff where it's, no, let's let's see how people are behaving. Like, that's what we're trying to Uh
0: It seems dangerous to to be an expert in a field that you're telling people doesn't have all the answers.
2: <laughs> hey, at least I got one thing. It's that's honesty. Pre- <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty ballsy. I like it. <laughs> Hey, we still we still have econometrics, so we still have advanced statistics. So I can, I can at least rely, partially rely on that. Can't explain it, but I can rely on it. <laughs> Dan, I feel like we might be Austrian.
1: Uh, oh, <laughs> oh, oh the well, <laughs> yeah, <it's>
0: <laughs> You say not we?
1: Uh, well, I I have studied some intro economics. I took, you know, I took microeconomics, macroeconomics uh, for the business degree stuff. And, and I actually, wow. what I identified most with, with was when Eric says, uh, uh, you've got, you know, no, nobody's completely right and completely wrong. It's, it's everybody's looking at it from their angle and while they might be wrong about big things. Like, uh, like like Keynes just constantly pumping money in. I, I I think it's a synthesis and I think you'd be foolish to ignore Austrian economics. They make a lot of lot of great grounded points. Like he's saying, it's all backed up by like, but we looked at this and when we looked at this and when we looked at this. I think,
0: that's the, I think it just boils down to that the economy is so much more complicated than people think.
2: Well, to go back to the South Park episode, because I really <laughs> think that that's not a, that bad of an example of the economy. It's public sentiment. It's yeah. really what it is. Like we want to get more complicated and be like, oh, it's this factor and this factor. Let me break up my LMSIS model and let's talk about short run aggregate supply line. Like, listen, we can talk about that all day. It's a horribly boring thing we're going to talk about. You got to, yeah. to cut me off after fifteen seconds. <laughs> but it's public sentiment. If people if people have positive outlooks, you're going to get positive outcomes in a lot of cases. Like it just it, it's, it's sometimes not any more complicated than that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You said that Jonathan Baird just said that that. Inflation has more to do with public sentiment than anything. Yep. Yeah. The guy we just had on here.
0: Yeah. I was actually just thinking about when you were talking about the the Russian businesses going out or Uh, on the verge of collapse like to me like the most the biggest danger that is how the public's going to react when they see that information yeah it may not have a monetary impact or or an impact on global trade but people see stuff like that and they get scared and start pulling their money that's all that matters
2: oh absolutely i mean like i'm a i'm a capitalist capitalist like capital is what drives the economy part of the reason i got into labor economics is because of my love of capital it's that like you know you look at capital it's just you know ambiguous force that moves out the economy trying to seek the greatest return um and then you've got labor which is only two parts of the production function: capital inputs and labor inputs and you, labor is far more difficult to define far more gray areas it's a great field because even when i'm wrong i'm probably bullshit my way to being right. Just if I, if I talk long enough it's it's a fantastic <laughs> trap to fall into <laughs> uh, but, but no like it, it's um it, labor can be fascinating, especially when we start talking about how people spend. Because as much as we study the economy, a huge factor of the economy is labor. So it's like, oh, the economy's doing bad. It's like, okay, well, half the economy's labor. It's like, yeah, so half the economy thinks half the economy is going bad, or vice versa. <laughs> half the economy thinks half the economy is going good. That, that's a positive thing.
0: <laughs> I could see that being confusing very quickly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then they then they let the chicken go loose in the back in the back of the Fed to right. figure out how much they should set rates. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) (laughs) there's some margaritas though on the middle of it afterwards (laughs) (laughs)
1: oh
2: yeah
0: how much one did they offer some
1: yeah okay i i do Uh. i do have a question for you for you eric or or at least a, a conversation starter in the Austrian view of the, the individual being able to make the best informed decision for themselves. My suspicion is, uh, and I would like to know your opinion on how much do you
2: think marketing interferes with that? Oh, so, so that's the, oh, I love this question. Cause I get, I get, I have many friends in marketing who hate me when they, ask, uh, when they, when I this <laughs> up, um, marketing is important. I don't mm-hmm. know if marketing is marginal. <laughs> um, Cause like, uh, do you know what the number one indicator of what type of of what type of uh, laundry detergent you're going to buy is? The price. What you had in your house growing up. What your mom used. Yeah. Oh. Yep. yep, that's the number one. And like, one of the things I love about economics is I feel like a lot of times we throw up our hands and go, "I have no idea why this is happening." God <laughs> Like, okay, somebody write a paper about it and, then, and, and see if somebody will publish it. Um, but. So mar- marketing has efficiencies in it because marketing conveys information very quickly. It, it, the value of marketing is, is information. It's can you mm-hmm. convey information? But I think people would still demand soap. I think people would still demand bread. I think people would still demand numbers of a, numbers of, a numerous amount of goods, mm-hmm. regardless of whether they're watching on television. So I view, the, uh, the way I view it uh, from a microeconomic standpoint is that you, the big reason that marketing exists is because marketing exists. It's that. Because one guy markets, somebody else has to market. I, I I think the information's material and marginal, but I don't think the actual exercise itself provides a, it increases the overall economic gain of a transaction.
0: So our ad budget is being True. wasted? Is that yeah. Yeah,
1: no, so well, well then it, it it takes my brain right to the place of, okay, so if a marketing campaign doesn't have a monetary return, wouldn't the that independent company not do marketing campaigns anymore?
2: What's important is the marginal return compared to the rest of the market. And, and again, I'm going to go wicked biased, wicked biased on the Austrian side, because we yeah, find marginality is super important. Uh, is, <laughs> is that if they're gaining, if doing that transaction and they gain nothing from it, but it prevented them from falling further behind, then the marginal benefit was still positive, And that was a smart transaction to go with. Okay. And I gotcha. Everybody would have to stop doing it. And that's when it'd, it'd be. It'd become meaningless. Gotcha. I um, get so many texts when this comes out from my friends, just absolutely mocking <laughs> me. <laughs> this is going to be so bad. All
0: right. You ready for the last loaded question? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> what, uh, what do you think is going to happen in the next, um, you know, two to three years with the, uh, the economy?
2: Um, I, th- I think we're going to continue to see <clears throat> pretty sustained inflation, probably I'd say north of 3% year over year. <clears throat> I think what's an important aspect is how the labor, econ- how the labor market recovers. Mm-hmm. So right now we're seeing very good employment numbers. We're seeing fantastic job growth, and that's important. But one, part, one segment of the economy that hasn't recovered, or I should say the labor sector that hasn't recovered, is part-time workers. Mm-hmm. We are seeing a, uh, a, you know, just not a return to part-time work. In- there are good parts and bad parts about that. One it, it, good part: it is spurring wage growth for the first time in 40 years. We're actually seeing real wage growth, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. That is that is driving inflation. That's ah, people buying more. Yeah, that's gonna that's gonna increase inflation. Uh, in, income increases, inflation increases, and it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But my concern is is stability. If markets can return to a, an area that you don't see aggressive quantitative easing, you don't see. Asp- different aspects of the economy almost still recoiling from the effects of COVID. Mm-hmm. Once that happens, you'll start to see re- a return to normal, in my opinion. You'll start to see managed inflation. You'll start to see um, you know consistent wage growth, uh, but we're still a ways away from that. I think we're probably two, three years away from that. That's, again, referencing that Roman taxi, uh, tax series. That's one of the best models to look at how long it takes places to absorb how long it takes the economy to absorb public policy changes. So I'm optimistic. I think most economists are optimistic people. Uh, so I think it's going to get better. I think it will continue to get better. Uh, but I think we're in for a little bit of you know, up and down on the inflation side uh, over the next you know, probably three to five quarters. How about just the overall equities? Uh, I think it's going to go up. I think there's a real, real high pent up amount of demand. Really? Yeah, I, I do. I think you know, one, one of the best statistics to look at is marginal currency of consumption. So if I give you a dollar, how much do you spend? Mm-hmm. That, so if I give you a dollar, you spend $1. ten. boom, you're going to see uh, that your marginal propensity of consumption is 1.1. 1. 1. This wage growth is really is the backbone of good economic, of good, 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 good uh, growth. Um, how it's going to translate equities? You know, we, it could be up and down, like a, you know, always say, like I'm an economist. I'm not a CFA. Those guys, you know how those right. guys do their jobs and <laughs> don't throw up in the bathroom every 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> <my> god. <laughs> I learned option trading. I learned derivative trading and all that modeling, and I just can't use it because I just don't have the risk tolerance for it. Just, mm. <laughs> like, this math is fun. I don't want to use it at all.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my struggle with futures in a nutshell, right there. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Like, yeah, but you know I, again, optimi- I'm optimistic. I think we'll see growth. I don't think we'll see 20 percent growth year-over-year, year, but I think we'll see stable growth going forward, probably I'd say probably upwards of you know three to five percent, again, hopefully better. Again, I'm, I'm usually pretty conservative.
0: I, that it makes me happy to finally see somebody who's got a more rosy picture to paint for the next you know little bit coming up.
2: You can't, yeah. you can't sell papers on positive news.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's
2: a good point. <laughs> I'm nothing to sell, so it doesn't benefit me to scare anybody. Too
0: bad everybody reads the negative headlines and they're the ones who act. (laughs) Uh, You keep mentioning labor and uh, I would feel remiss if we didn't ask about the great resignation and whether you think that the reports of that were overblown or people actually leaving the workforce and deciding that, you know, they really don't need to be in there. Is that what's driving all this wage growth?
2: Yeah, so that is driving a lot of the wage growth. Growth. Anytime you see what we call switching in economics, that's when people change decisions. You actually do see a lot of efficiency gained. With that you see people more optimizing what their 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 top income level. No, I I really do believe it. I think there's a decentralization away from you know downtowns and stuff. And I think when you remove uh, businesses, you know, thirty dollars a square foot a year to have office space, they can pay their employees more. They can transfer that money and. Employees can work remote. One of the big things is that because people aren't commuting, which is like you know two three hours a day, that's a lot of economic production. Mm-hmm. They're, they're putting that towards other other economically positively producing activities, which is creating more money, which they can then spend more. There's a dirty dirty secret in economics, which is that we've known since the early 2000s that you can work at home and be very efficient, if not more <laughs> efficient.
0: Are all economists working at home, and we're just all catching up?
2: Yeah, I mean, work is a very loose man. <laughs> <standard thing. laughs> <laughs> ah, your secret's out. Yeah. Uh, we, I put a bunch of Greek letters on this page. Yeah, I called good for a day. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, it, it, the great resignation's real. Um, it's a fascinating time to be, you know, it, it's going to provide, you know, fuel for my field for the next, you know, decade in terms mm-hmm. of what we're going to be able to write. But no, it's real. They're looking for new jobs. They're, they're, they're confident that, you know, if you live through a pandemic, you're pretty confident switching a job, probably. Um, yeah. Right? My biggest concern with the Great Resignation is is it's going to leave a lot of people who are structurally unemployed in the aftermath. People who have lost skills that are never going to be able to recover them. Ooh, uh,
0: yeah, that's my fear too. <laughs> from from uh, trying, to, uh, I'm I'm part of the Great Resignation, I guess you should say.
3: Yes, <laughs> uh, Dan and I both
0: decided to try to go professional uh, trading stocks. So, oh, good for you guys. The longer it draws out, then the the harder it's going to be to go back to work. I think. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah,
0: definitely. But I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to fail. I was
2: going to say, that not that the goal in life in general? Just make it hard to go back to work? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I might as well try, you know, give it a shot. Well, let me ask you guys this. What made you want to jump into a, a, such a risky field? Um, it was the first time I ever felt passion for
0: anything because um, we were doing it part-time and then trying to balance doing that and the show. Uh, and so to finally like find something that I wake up and want to do every morning, uh, I just couldn't do the other job anymore
2: that's perfect that's absolutely that's in economics we talk about utility what Mm -hmm. makes you happy So you did you made a smart decision you know it's let's be honest you're you're probably happier than you are now like you just said and that's actually good for the economy happier people make better decisions and they're more optimistic in their consumption habits uh there's the tagline
0: dan we made the economy better by quitting our jobs
1: (laughs) yes we did (laughs) Yes, we did.
0: Do you, can you for that? Uh,
1: yep. Uh,
0: I'm going to snip that. <laughs> That's going to be part of my morning routine. I'm going to listen to that as my prep. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Kyle. You're doing good.
2: Doing good. pat <laughs> really myself on the back with that one. Yeah. <laughs> oh.
1: The only thing that would make it better is if you had quit a marketing job. Oh yeah, right.
2: <laughs> oh, I'm gonna get so much. <laughs> it's nothing against the field. I think the field's fine. <laughs> it has
0: its place. It has its. It has its, you know, importance, and there definitely are benefits to it.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking at the World Finance Forum in in April. And I can't wait for the first marketing guy to come up to me and just punch me in the face for saying this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, are you gonna are you presenting a anti marketing presentation? <laughs> no. Okay. no. Okay. <laughs> they all listen to our podcast, Kyle. <laughs> <all of them. laughs> yeah. I Show up should. light a cigarette. <laughs> like, <"Listen." laughs>
0: all you are, all your jobs are stupid. <laughs> and just drop the mic and walk away.
2: You have no purpose. <laughs> I <laughs> want to be very clear that it's not my opinion on that.
1: <laughs> yes, we know. <laughs> <laughs> Any trades you make are your own trades. Uh, uh, maybe we'll edit that a little bit.
2: <laughs> oh no, this is cold. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, I was on a trading podcast a little while ago, and they asked me like, "Oh, what's the best one of the best things to invest in?" There's like a year and a half ago, and I go, "You know, I don't make investment decisions, but um." You know, it, 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 we have a lot of fiber optic that's getting uh, built out. It's, uh, you know, and especially with the new ca- with the new stimulus plans, I go. So any company that deals with helium because fiber optics need to be made in a hundred percent helium environment. Hmm. And I got so many, I got like, like a good amount of emails and LinkedIn message of people just getting like frustrated with me because I didn't name a helium stock. And I was oh, like, I don't like, helium yeah. stock. What does that even mean? What's a helium?
0: Next time someone asks you that question, just say uh, yourself. Yeah, <laughs> it's in like a balloon. Yeah, invest in yourself. Good <laughs> some education. Learn something. That's the best thing you can do with your time. Dan, do you have do you have anything else that we need to cover? Because I think I'm. I don't think I can laugh anymore. I'm out of breath.
1: I mean, I have some more provocative questions, but uh... <laughs> are they personal nature? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> God damn. Who do economists could be funny? Mm, yeah, right.
2: <laughs> uh, we're depressed. It's a dismal science. <laughs> <laughs>
0: i just want i want to be in like the powell's meetings after the like he finishes talking to the uh you know congress or, or
1: oh and the whiskey comes out yeah <laughs>
0: when when he's telling everybody what he really thinks and they're all actually <laughs> laughing and having fun he's like do you believe i told these fucking idiots that inflation's transitory it
2: doesn't even mean anything <laughs> what, what are the things we do in economics anytime something good happens to one of us we we, we tend to send each other alcohol usually whiskey Nice. So, I, uh, w- w- uh, w- one of the most influential economists in my life, he got when he got promoted to be the dean of his school. Um, I sent him a big bottle of whiskey, like a, you know, nice He loves whiskey, and it, the thing he was on vacation, so it sat in his inbox with a giant tape around it that said "alcohol" for like a week
3: <laughs> and a half. And he's like, I feel like That's a little inappropriate. <laughs> I'm like, Sorry.
0: Yeah, well, don't go on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh eric where can people find you if they want to hear more
2: um uh, so you know, linkedin is always the best way I, 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 that's where i circulate you know any article i publish show them on you know or anytime i'm doing anything public i, I tend to keep it on there i'm not a big social media user but yeah i mean that, that's the best way to keep up with me and you know, I, I try and answer every linkedin message unless you're asking me about a helium stock then I'm probably not where you at this point <laughs> you know you're gonna get <laughs> <laughs> uh, i'm gonna get so much marketing hate email it's not gonna be fun at all Hopefully there's not Helium.
0: Hopefully they're Heli- Hopefully they
2: aren't Helium marketers. <laughs> you guys sell me on Apple. <laughs> yeah, that's the best way to find me. And, uh, I, I, you know, I try and, uh, I try to be as open and transparent. I share everything, I, but probably too much, <laughs> but yeah, that's the best way to, best place, best place to find me.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time, Eric. This has been uh, a lot more fun than I was expecting. <laughs> and when you hear the term <laughs> economist, uh, it's like, it's like we were talking to uh, some of the, Financial advisors and i are like, God damn, these people are fun too.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I do like FAs, very positive on FAs. Very,
0: very Dan, you want to take us home?
1: All right, folks, thanks for sticking around to the end. Another fantastic interview. I would love to just stick around forever. Uh, we definitely want to have you back on again sometime, Eric, for sure. Uh, thank you we again for coming on. and being such a great guest. This has been such a great time. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
2: Well, thank you for having me,
1: guys. All right, and I normally like to ask Kyle to try and uh, give some wisdom to top the guest, but uh, I don't think I don't think he got anything, Kyle. So I'm I'm going to skip. No, nah, I'm not topping any of we're that. just going to skip that. The day I do top a guest is going to be something else,
0: though. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can juggle better than you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Bye, spy. No. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we'll be coming back at you soon with another exciting episode. So until then, happy trades. Bye, folks. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks in the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.